Uh, this morning we're going to be in Daniel chapter 6 and we're going to be in chapter 9. So if you have your Bibles and want to go ahead and turn there, you can go ahead and do so. Again, if you're at home, you can uh, easily grab it right there uh, or you can follow along on the screen. We'll be putting this up so it'll be easier for you to follow along with. But again, chapter 6 and chapter 9 is where we're going to be today. I want to talk to you a little bit about resilience today, not only because I think it's exactly what God is requiring of us today in the very difficult trying times that we find ourselves in right now, but this is going to be one of the main qualities that's going to define Daniel's life from beginning all the way to end. But if you know anything about Daniel's life, you're going to, you, you know that as a young teenage boy, uh, he's taken away into captivity at the hands of the Babylonians. So essentially, he's kidnapped and he's forced to serve in the home of an evil king named Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, in other words, he's seen his family uh, be killed in front of his eyes. He's seen friends killed. He's seen his country destroyed. He's seen the temple be burned. And uh, he is, so he knows, what ops, he knows what it is to live in difficult situations. Uh, and still in the middle of it all, his faith is going to flourish. And God's going to actually use his faith three different times to bring about many revivals in the end. And so that is resilience. That's what we're going to be looking at today. It is this quality that allows some people to gain momentum in trying times such as this, such as a pandemic or in the middle of an economic collapse or a health crisis or divided nation or tension that you may be having at home in your marriage or with your kids or with your friends or family or in a world that is growing more and more hostile and indifferent to Christianity. That's what we're talking about when it comes to resilience. It is this quality that allows some people to grow or to gain momentum in times like today when most people would typically quit. Uh, Webster's is going to define it like this. It's going to say that it is the capacity to recover quickly from difficulty. And so this is the quality that we fell in love with in movies like Braveheart and Rocky or Harriet or in characters like Frodo Baggins in Lord of the Rings or Rudy Rudiger with Rudy or something like that. It's, it's why grown men cried in the 1996 Olympics when you saw Kerry Strug nail that final vault and win the, t- win the gold for Team USA for the very first time over Russia. I, I, you know exactly what I'm talking about, so don't pretend like you don't know what I'm talking about. If you were alive and you had a soul in 1996, you wept when you saw that little girl like hobble to the line on one foot with two torn ligaments in her ankle, and she's hopping to that line the final one to go. She needed like a 9.6 or a 9.7 on that vault to win the gold for Team USA. And somehow she runs down that thing and she lands the vault on one leg. And as soon as she does her little bowing and everything, she just collapses to the ground. And they come and they pick her up and they scoop her out. I'm not kidding. When I saw that thing for the very first time, I was a teenager my whole family, like we were jumping up and down in the living room. We were going absolutely nuts, high-fiving each other, screaming. Like it was such an incredible thing because like that's what resilience is. Like that's exactly what resilience is. She kept going when everyone else would have quit. And so Daniel is going to do, he's going to show us the same thing in the past today. He's going to show us how we can grab hold of resilience today in a time when most believers would have compromised or at least walked away. And so again, church, like I don't know where you may be today. I don't know if you're like many of us and you're feeling tired. You're feeling incredibly exhausted. Maybe uh, the economic pressure that's taking place. Maybe you've actually got a health crisis in your home. I don't know exactly what you're going through today, but if that is you, you're feeling the pressure to compromise or to put God in relationship with him on the back burner or to fully walk away. Maybe that's where you are today. If that's where you are today, then Daniel's story is absolutely for you. And so again, if you have your Bibles, Daniel chapter six uh, and in chapter nine, that's where we're going to be today. If you're not familiar with this part of the story, then it's important to understand that the nation of Israel is in a time of judgment with the Lord. And so uh, for many, many years, God has been calling them to repent because idolatry has been rampant throughout the land. 
uh, is fallen on deaf ears. They have not repented. And so um, God has brought, has kind of removed his favor from them for a short amount of time. And what happens is three, two different captivities take place that are really central in Israel's history. The first is going to be 722 BC. This is going to take place in the northern kingdom of Israel. The Assyrians are the dominant power at that time. They're going to come in and, uh, and take over the northern kingdom of Israel. 605 BC, the Babylonians are going to be in power over the Assyrians, and they're going to come and take over the southern kingdom of Judah. And this is where Daniel's story is going to come into play. Three different deportations take place uh, when the Babylonians take over. The first is 605 BC. That's when Daniel and his friends are going to be removed from their homeland. They're going to be taken away into captivity. 597, this is the time of Ezekiel. And then 586 BC is when the Babylonians come into Jerusalem. They completely wipe out Jerusalem and they burn down the temple and destroy it at its core. And so the first five chapters of the book of Daniel are going to really deal with uh, essentially this first 65 years of captivity, okay? So this is going to be when Daniel as a young boy is rising to prominence in King Nebuchadnezzar's uh, land. He refuses to eat the food. He gets the favor of God. Chapter two, he's able to discern dreams. And uh, that's another mini revival of sorts that takes place three there. Chapter three, this is going to be when uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are being forced to bow at uh, the, the mighty statue of King Nebuchadnezzar. And if not, they're thrown into the fiery furnace. And you remember what takes place there. Uh, and so by the time we get to chapter six, um, this is going to be 539 BC. And so there's a major shift that's taken place. About 65 years have, t- have passed. It's no longer the Babylonians who are in power. No more King Nebuchadnezzar. Now the Medes and the Persians have taken over. And so now King Darius is the one who is in charge. And so when chapter six picks up, this is going to be old Daniel. This is going to be 80-year-old Daniel at the end of his time. And just before Israel, the Israelites are going to be allowed to re- return back home. And so um, here's what we're going to, uh, here's what it's going to say beginning in, in uh, chapter six, verse three. It says, now Daniel had so distinguished himself among the administrators and the satraps by his exceptional qualities that the king planned to set him over the entire kingdom. At this, the administrators and the satraps tried to find grounds for charges against Daniel and his conduct of government affairs, but they were unable to do so. They could find no corruption in him because he was so trustworthy and he was neither corrupt nor negligent. Finally, these men said, okay, we're never going to find any basis for charges against this man, Daniel, unless it has something to do with the law of his God. So I love this scene. This is what's taking place. It's, it's natural jealousy that's taking place in the higher ranks. There's pride, there's ego, surprise, surprise, and the, surprise, surprise, but there's pride and ego going on. And they're saying, okay, what are we going to do about this Daniel guy? We can't get him fired because of his work, because it's so exceptional. So what we need to do is we need to find uh, some way that we can trip him up. We, we need to find some way that we can make it illegal for him to worship his God. That's the only way we're going to be able to find anything that can trip him up. And so I love that. That's, that's what's going on right here. And so the administrators and the satraps, they went as a group to the king and they said, may King Darius live forever. They're flattering this man. May King Darius live forever. The royal administrators, the prefects, the satraps, the advisors, and the governors, they've all agreed that the king should issue an edict and enforce this decree on anyone who prays to any God or human being during the next 30 days, except to you, your majesty. They shall be thrown into the lion's den. And so they're trying to trick the king here. Now, your majesty, issue the decree and put it in writing so that it cannot be altered in accordance with the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be 
repealed. And so in other words, like, this is stronger than a pinky swear or cross my heart and hope to die. Like, this is one of these laws that goes into effect. It cannot ever be repealed. And so they're trying to trip, uh, they're trying to trick the, the king into making this kind of law in order to capture Daniel. And it's exactly what happens. Verse 9, D- King Daniel, Darius puts the decree in writing. And then I love this next section. It says, when Daniel learned that the decree had been published, he went home to his upstairs room where the windows were open toward Jerusalem. And three times a day, he got down on his knees and he prayed, giving thanks to his God, just as he had always done before. Don't you love this part right here? Like this is pretty much what we see back in chapter three with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You remember this scene when they're kind of like, okay, wait, you guys are going to, you're, you're going to throw us in the fire if we don't bow to this statue, this 90 foot statue of King Nebuchadnezzar. You're going to throw us in, in this fiery furnace if we don't bow okay, throws in the fire is essentially what they say. They're like, you can take everything in our world from us. You can, like, you can tear down our temple. You can, you can change our names. You can kidnap our families. You can even teach us about our false gods, but there's nothing you can do that's going to make me bow to a false god. Church is exactly what Daniel's doing right here. He's going, wait a second, you've actually made it against the law for me to pray? You've made it against the law for me to, to worship my God? Are you kidding me? You're going to throw, you're going to feed me to lions if I pray? then you got to do what you got to do because like there's nothing you can make me do. Uh, there's nothing you can do that's going to make me stop praying. And so like this is the key, this is the secret to Daniel's success. This is the key to his resilience is his prayer life. Uh, I love the way Samuel Chadwick puts it, but he says this, he says, the one concern of the devil is to keep the saints from prayer. Our enemy fears nothing from prayerless studies, from prayerless work, from prayerless religion. He laughs at our toil. He mocks at our wisdom, but he trembles when we pray. Prayer turns ordinary mortals into men and women of power. Prayer brings fire. It brings rain. And it brings life because it brings God. It's why there is no power like that of prevailing prayer. One of the ways that we've said it in the past is that prayer is the means by which the power of God is unleashed in the world. And the reason we say that so often around here is because that's exactly what we see all throughout Scripture. I mean, in Acts chapter 4, the Holy Spirit has already come at Pentecost, and it says that the church is gathered together in prayer. And so it says, it says that the Spirit of God has filled the church with boldness. And what we see is these lay people hit the streets, and they start going out there and preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. And by the time chapter 5 rolls around, there's nearly 10,000 brand new believers that are out there serving the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the same thing in chapter 12. Peter's been in prison for preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it says that the church gathers again to pray. And when the church gathers to pray, God miraculously blows the prison doors wide open. And Peter literally walks out of prison alive. I mean, the psalmist is going to say, when the people cried out to the Lord in their trouble. In other words, when the people gathered together in prayer and they cried out to the Lord in their trouble, he delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still and the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad that the waters were quiet and he brought them to their desired haven. But church, like that's what God does when we pray. Like that's what the Holy Spirit does when we pray. He calms the storm and he flattens the waves. Like he fills us with boldness so that we can go out into the world and we can bring about revival through the power of the Holy Spirit. He makes us resilient so that we can be a people that go out and do all the different things that he's called us to do. And it's exactly what we're going to see here in Daniel. And so, so how do you keep going for 65 years in enemy territory? How do you keep going for 65 years in hostile land with people that are not only opposed to you, but to everything that you believe in? Church, it's right here in the text. Three times a day, Daniel was down on his knees and he was praying, giving thanks to his God, just as he'd always done before. 
There's two qualities, there's two words that are going to define Daniel's prayer life that are going to help bring about resilience inside of his soul. The first one I want to talk about is this. It's very simply discipline, okay? Very simply discipline. So when you're 80 years old and you're on your knees three times a day, just like you've always done in your life, whether you feel like it or not, like that is the definition of a disciplined life. The word that's used there is a, is a word that, that simply describes the practice of training people to observe rules or a certain code of behavior for the purpose of attaining something much more valuable in the end. And so it may feel like a sacrifice in the moment, but you're doing this sacrifice willingly because you know it's going to bring about something greater in the end. Okay. And so when we talk about discipline, it's important that we understand uh, this is very, very different from legalism. Legalism and discipline are two separate things. And the reason I want to make that point is because one of the most common objections I hear to the disciplined life is, well, you know what? I really don't want to be a legalist. You know, I, I, I had a faithful, quiet time with the Lord. I would always spend time uh, in, in, the, in God's word and in prayer, but then I felt like I was getting a little bit legalistic about it, and so I stopped being disciplined in my life. Church, two very different things. Discipline is very, very different from legalism. Legalism is what the, is what the Pharisees fell into, which Jesus condemned all the time. Okay, it's men and women who trust in their incredible spiritual discipline for a sense of self-righteousness or a sense of righteousness which no amount of work can ever provide. It's the Pharisee in Luke chapter 18 who went to the temple courts and he prayed. He said, dear God, thank you that I'm not like that sinner over there who can't get his stuff together. God, thank you that I'm not like that sinner over there. Thank you that I've got a disciplined life. I know your word. I do the religious deed. Like, thank you that I'm not like that joker over there who can't get his stuff together. And the reason he prays that is because he actually believes that his incredible spiritual discipline is why God's approved of him in the, in the first place. And it's not what we're talking about right here. Like if you're legitimately afraid of becoming a legalist, the solution to legalism is repentance. It's not pulling back from self-discipline. Like the, the, the solution to legalism is coming before the Lord your God saying, Father, I recognize there is no righteousness that I can ever earn in front of you. All the righteousness which I need is gifted to me uh, through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. You have given me this righteousness. It's not something that I've ever earned in and of myself. And so if you're afraid of becoming legalistic, you come before the Lord and you say, Father, I'm repenting of my self-righteousness and I'm falling at your feet, claiming your righteousness, which has been given to me uh, for your praise and for your glory. And so the solution is never, ever, ever to stop being a spiritually disciplined person. Like Paul's going to say in 2 Timothy chapter 1, he's going to say, the Lord didn't give us a spirit of fear, but he gave us a spirit of love and power and one of self-discipline. In other words, this is one of these things that God gives us and helps us grow inside of our soul. Galatians chapter 5, uh, this is one of the fruits of the Holy Spirit. In other words, like when you and I surrender to the Holy Spirit, when we come to the Lord Jesus Christ in prayer and, and we surrender to the Holy Spirit through also through his word, he produces his life in us. Things again, like love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and faithfulness and what? Self-control, a self-discipline. That's exactly what he's talking about. Like it's something that he gives us and it's something that he builds in us. It's something that he helps us with because he knows that it always, always, always delivers. I love the way Elizabeth Elliot talks about this, but she says, freedom and discipline have come to be regarded as mutually exclusive, when in fact, freedom is not at all the opposite, but the final reward of discipline. And she goes on to explain that it is, it is something that is bought with a high price. It's not something that's merely claimed. The professional athlete or the racehorse they're free to perform as they do only because they've been subjected to countless hours of grueling work, rigidly prescribed and faithfully carried out. 
Men are free to soar into space because they've willingly confined themselves in a tiny capsule designed and produced by highly trained scientists and craftsmen, meticulously followed instructions, and they submitted themselves to rules which other people defined. I mean, church, think about this. Like, when has discipline ever failed? When has discipline ever not delivered? Like, I, I was reading a while ago about Michael Phelps' training regime, easily one of my favorite, favorite Olympians of all times. Uh, but, it, but it was just talking about how during his peak training phases, that guy would swim over 50 miles every single week, right? He, he would practice twice a day, five to six hours a day, six days a week, and sometimes more if he was training at a high altitude. But it talked about his diet. He would eat nearly 12,000 calories every single day, 4,000 calories a meal. I mean, even at breakfast, the dude ate three fried egg sandwiches, drank two cups of coffee, consumed a five-egg omelet, a bowl of grits, three slices of French toast with powdered sugar, and three chocolate chip pancakes. Like, that's just breakfast right there. At lunch, he did the same thing. It was a pound of pasta, two giant ham and cheese sandwiches on white bread with mayo. Then he'd drink about 1,000 calories worth of energy drinks. The same thing at dinner time: another pound of pasta, a full pizza, followed by another 1,000 calories of energy drinks. But you're like, that's what you'd have to do in order to, be a be- to, in order to be the best. It's a small sacrifice up front, but you do so knowing that there's a greater reward on the end. Church, and it's the exact same thing when we're talking about spiritual discipline today. I mean, I'll never forget going to this uh, event that was um, where Beth Moore was one of the speakers of this thing, but her daughter, Amanda Moore, stood up in front of everybody to introduce her that day, and I loved what she had to say about her mom. But she goes, you know what, I, 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 I struggled to think about how to introduce my mom, but she goes, the thing that I can say which is most true about her and probably most honoring to her today is everything that you see on stage from her and everything you read about in your books is true from her at home. She goes, I've seen this since I was a little girl. And she went on to describe this mother that just devoured the word of God on a daily basis. She went on to describe her mom who loved to spend time in prayer all day long and how she loved to to, to, to bring the two together and to pray according to God's word, which she ended up writing a book about. But she said, like, this is who she was. She had nearly the entire New Testament memorized because she loved spending time with the Lord that much. But church, like, that's how you develop power and resilience today. Church, you keep on praying and you keep drawing near. You, you keep doing the different things you know you need to do that are going to bring you life because you know that discipline always delivers. You know that the Holy Spirit's always going to bring power uh, when we come to him in that kind of a discipline. Church, even if you can't see the fruit of that kind of a ministry and that kind of a disciplined life at first, like even if the world is not changing when you pray, or even if your circumstances you're praying about, those things aren't praying, aren't changing when you pray. Like you can always rest a little bit easier knowing that, it, knowing that at the very least, prayer is the means by which the Spirit of God is always changing me. So even if you're looking around and you're saying, okay, like I'm not seeing the fruit of this thing and, and circumstances are still the same and the world is still the same and like, like there's still a, like a massive economic collapse, like you can still rest easy knowing that prayer is always the means by which the Holy Spirit is going to be changing me. It's what C.S. Lewis talks about when he says, I pray because I can't help myself. I pray because I'm helpless. It may not always change the mind of God, but it does always change me. I was reading uh, Mark Batterson's book, The Circle Maker. He had a fascinating take on Matthew chapter 26 and the story of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. But he was talking about how uh, when Jesus went to the Garden of Gethsemane, this is just before his betrayal and just before the crucifixion, he brought Peter, James, and John with him. And uh, Jesus would go into the garden to go pray by himself. And he asked the three to stay behind and also pray. And I don't know if you remember this scene or not, but like Jesus would come back from his alone time in prayer. And it says in verse 40, it says that he, he says he comes back and he finds Peter, James, and John fast asleep. They couldn't stay awake the entire time. 
And so he says, hey, guys, uh, couldn't you stay awake with me for even an hour? Watch and pray, he says. Why? So that you also will not fall into temptation. For the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And so this thing plays out three different times. Jesus goes into the garden to pray, and he comes back out, and they're asleep. And he says, guys, stay awake because the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And of course, that plays out three different times. And so you remember the rest of the story and, how, and what takes place after this. Jesus is, of course, he's betrayed. He's arrested, and he's taken away to be crucified. Everyone else disperses. And then there's this little girl that's in front of a hostile crowd, and she recognizes Peter from among the people. And she says, hey, aren't you one of Jesus' disciples? Like, oh, aren't you with them? And Peter's afraid at this whole thing. And he, you remember exactly what he says. He looks at this girl. He looks at the girl. He's like, I don't know what you're talking about. I don't know this man. I've never seen him a day in my life. And of course, he goes on and he denies him three different times too. Why? Because the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And so Batterson goes on and he speculates and he simply asks this question. He says, what do you think would have happened if Peter had stayed awake all night to pray like Jesus had asked him to do? Like, do, you, do, you, do you think he would have denied knowing Jesus? I mean, apart from the sovereignty of God and stuff like that, but do you think that things would have been different for Peter? And he goes on and he speculates again. And he goes, you know what? I think it would have been a very, very different story for Peter. Why? Because prayer is the means by which he strengthens the will in order to compensate for the weakness of the flesh. And church, some of us need to hear that today because like you've been asleep for a really long time and you've never been able to connect the dots between that and why you may be so close to denying him today. Why you may be so close to putting him on the back burner today or never returning or never continuing once you go off to college or anything like that. I mean, church, can you just think about this for a second? Like what victories could be yours tomorrow if you woke up today and you started to pray with intentionality today every single day? Church, what victories could you be walking in today like for yourself over your own sin and over your own addictive behavior, the things that you've been wanting to be rid of, but you've never been able to be rid of in your life? Like what victories could you be walking in tomorrow if you said, today, I'm gonna start being disciplined in my life. I'm gonna come before the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm gonna pray in the power of the Holy Spirit every single day for victory. Church, like what victories could be yours if you started praying every day for your children or for your marriage or for your family or for the loneliness that you may be feeling at home in isolation today or for our economy or, or even for our country or for our political leaders, the ones who are in charge? Like, what, like what, what victories could be walking in tomorrow if we started praying for revival every single day, that the Spirit of God would do a work in our community whereby every knee shall bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, all to the praise and glory of the Father. Like what victories could be walking in today or tomorrow? Like if we got down on our knees today and started praying with consistency and discipline every single day. Church, I, I, this is the key to Daniel's resilience in his life. Three times a day, we find him on his knees. And what happens is the Spirit of God breathes life into him and gives him strength and resilience to compensate for the weakness of his flesh. And so that's the first word that's right here is discipline. The second word I want to talk about is defiance, which is easily one of my favorite words and I think defines his prayer life and even his character. But like when the king signs a decree saying that you're going to be eaten by lions if you pray and like it doesn't even phase you a bit, like that is the definition of defiant prayer. It, it, it is what we see. Like there are three qualities of defiant prayer. It is recognition, um, desperation, and conviction, right? There's three qualities of defiant prayer, recognition, desperation, and conviction. So it all begins with this recognition of evil. And so if you're Daniel, this is the easy part to understand 
understand. You're looking around and you're saying, yeah, the world is absolutely evil. Like when you're living in a world where your country has been destroyed, your temple's been burned down, your family's been killed, your people have been enslaved, your own people are now bowing to false idols all around you, and now your life is being threatened if you pray. Are you kidding me? Like, like it's easy to recognize the evil that's around you every single day. And so defiant prayer begins with that. It begins with the recognition of evil. There's, rec- there's evil in this place over here. There's evil in this community over here. Like it is taking place all around you today. So that's where it begins. That leads to a desperation for God to move. And this holy discontent that says, God, this evil that's taking place all around there, or this evil that may be even taking place inside of me, it is not okay. It leads to a holy discontent and a desperation for God to move. And and when desperation takes root, church, like that will always lead us to pray because prayer is the most natural thing you can do when you are desperate for God to move. It's why uh, we see this all the time. The church, like when you lost your job and you weren't able to pay your bills, what was the first thing you did? You got down on your knees and you prayed. You called up your friends, you called up the elders, and you begged God to move. Like when your daughter came home and she brought her first boyfriend home from school, what did you do? Like you prayed like crazy, God, I need you to break this thing up, right? Like you prayed like crazy. Like every single fall, like if you're a Cowboys fan for the past 25 years, every single fall, what do you do? You pray like crazy and you're saying, God, I need you to bring in, I need you to come and do something which they're not able to do. We need you to do a miracle over here. Like that's what you do when you're desperate for God to move. Back on September 11, 2001, an entire nation gathered together and they prayed and they said, Father, we need you to come and to move. God, we need you to come and to do something because like the world like, the, the, is going crazy. It's out of our hands. We need you to come and do something. The church, like that's what you do when you're desperate for God to move. And so it begins in the recognition of evil. That leads to a desperation for God to move and to do something different. And then all of that culminates with this conviction that I have to pray no matter what because prayer, again, is the means by which the mercy and power of God is unleashed in this world. And it's again, it's exactly what we see in Daniel's life. Chapter 9, we're actually going to get a glimpse of the, of the uh, content of his prayers. But here's what he says starting in verse 3. Here's how he prays. He, he, he's doing this defiantly against uh, what Darius decreed. And he says, so I turned to the Lord and I pleaded with him in prayer and petition. I turned to the God of Israel and I begged him to move in fasting and in sackcloth and in ashes. Church, I want you to notice the urgency of his prayers. I want you to know the passion that may be behind some of these things that he's praying for. And he says, I prayed to the Lord, my God. And I confess, Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments. And so if you're familiar with all with the Acts model of prayer, um, adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and supplication. That's what this means. Adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and supplication. Uh, this is not what Daniel's thinking about at that time. However, this is uh, kind of the, the outline that he's going to follow a little bit right there. But like that is adoration. God, you are the great and the awesome God. I adore you. I adore you. Worship you. I adore you. He continues in confession in verse 5. We have sinned and done wrong, he says. We have been wicked and rebelled. We have turned away from the commands and the laws of God. I want you to notice he's not just looking at the evil that's around him. He's not just looking at the Persians and the Medes and the Babylonians and all these things that are around there. He's not just looking at the Israelites that have bowed to a false god. He's going, no, 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 I'm in this camp. Like the evil that's out there, it's in here too. And he's praying corporately. I want you to notice it's not just individual prayers. He's praying on behalf of the people and he's saying, we have done this. We have sinned. We have done wrong. All of Israel has transgressed your law, he says in verse 11. We've refused to obey you. 
Therefore, the curses and the sworn judgment written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, has been poured out on us because we've sinned against you. Like, that's what he's saying. Like, this is on us. It's not just on them. The things that we're experiencing today, it has to do with us, the community, the covenant community of believers over here, and how we've broken our promises to you. And so he continues with thanksgiving in chapter 6. He's three times a day. He's on his knees praying, giving thanks to God the Father. And then in 17, he gets the supplication. And all supplication is, is making requests of God with humility. But here's what he says. He says, now, great God, again, hear the prayers and the petitions of your servant. For your sake, O Lord, look with favor on your desolate sanctuary. Give ear, O God, and hear. Open your eyes and see the desolation of the city that bears your name. We do not make requests of you because we are righteous, but because of your great mercy. In other words, we're not coming in of our own greatness. It's not because of our discipline. It's not because of how holy we are. We are petitioning you because we know that you are a just and merciful God. Listen to us, O Lord. Forgive us, O Lord. Hear our cry and act for your sake, O God. Don't delay because your city and your people bear your name. But church, like that's the picture of a man who is desperate for God to move. Like he's looking around at the evil in the world and he's saying, Father, we need you to come and to move. Like for your sake, O God, don't delay because we need your mercy. Like they're threatening to kill me if I choose to pray. They're going to throw me to lions because I'm practicing my faith and I'm talking with you. Are you kidding me? Like they're, going to, they're threatening to throw me in a fire. Like if we bow to their idols, are you, are you kidding me? And he's looking around, he's going, look, it's not just the bad guys there. He's looking at himself and he's saying, like, I need you to move in me. I need you to move in me here. Like, I've sinned and I've done wrong. Our people, we have sinned. We have done wrong. We have been wicked. We've all refused to obey. So, Father, forgive us our sin and give us your favor again. I love the way J.D. Greer talks about this, but he says, powerful and effective prayer begins when you're able to perceive the gap between where a situation is and where God would have it be. Church, anyone else looking at the news today and, and, and noticing a massive gap between the way things are today and where God would have them be? Like, it's why Jesus is going to teach us to pray, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. I adore your name, right? Holy be your name. But then he goes on and he says, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth right now in our midst, in our church, in 2020 here in America, all around the world, thy will be done on earth as it already is in heaven. In other words, church, in other words, Father, I need your your kingdom to come now. Father, let your kingdom come now. Everything that's going to be true of your kingdom then, when Christ returns and he makes all things brand new, Father, would you bring those realities into the world right now? Father, we need your miraculous touch. I need your healing. We need the fullness of your power. We need your rule and reign. We are 60 years removed from a civil rights movement, and laws have not been able to change the heart of man. And so I am asking you and I am begging you, would you bring your kingdom now? Would you bring revival to our land right now? Would you change us from the inside out? And would you bring healing and forgiveness right now? Would you bring repentance to your church so that we can have unity once again as you've always desired? God, we are living in a world right now where a baby's life is treated as a choice rather than as an image bearer of God who already has inherent dignity, value, and honor as such an image bearer of God. And so I'm asking, would you come and bring your kingdom now? In as much as it will be true then, God, would it become true right now? now, not for my sake, but for their sake and for the glory of your name. Church, like what's it going to take for us to feel desperate today? What's it going to take for us to fall down on our knees and pray with discipline and defiance? Church, is, is it a global pandemic? Because like we're in the middle of a pandemic. Like is it an economic collapse? Like that's where we are today. A, a church that's not able to gather? Are you kidding me? Like, a political landscape that does not honor God. 
a, a marriage that's about to blow up, a generation of students that are not wanting to follow Jesus. Like all of that stuff is here right now. It's all here. Like what's it going to take for us to be desperate for him to move? I'm reading the Barna reports a little while ago about Generation Z, and it's talking about how that is the least church generation that we've ever seen because they don't trust anybody anymore. Like all they've seen from the authorities around them are divorce and abuse in the home, over a 50% divorce rate. Of those who stay together, over, only, only somewhere around half of those are actually satisfied and happy at home. They're seeing corruption in politics. They're seeing hypocrisy in the church. They're talking about how this is the first generation whose entire worldview is going to be shaped by media and digital technology. Like not their family, not the church, not the community, not the word of God. Like their entire worldview is going to be shaped by what they see and view online. They're talking about the rates of depression and how this generation is twice as likely as the last to commit suicide because they cannot escape the comparison trap of a digital world. And it just goes on and on and on. But church, like I'm reading that and I'm going, Father, I'm desperate for you to move. God, we need you to move. We need you to bring renewal. God, we need you to bring forgiveness to us. We need you to heal a broken people. We need Daniels and we need Deborahs to rise up with resilience. We need students who are willing to defy the norms of the day and say, like, I don't care if everyone, if everyone else is bowing to idols. I will not bow. I don't care if, any, if, if, if no one else is praying. Like, I'm not going to stop praying. Like, I don't care what's going around in my friends at school. Like, I will not bow. I'm following Jesus no matter what. We need parents that are willing to model it and, and bring it and teach it at home so they can pass on the faith to the next generation. We need grandparents that are going to step up and, and not let the next generation fall away. Dr. Lewis Baldwin, in his book about the prayer life of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., he talks about the defiant prayer life of Dr. King and how uh, he'd shut himself in a hotel room to pray as he pleaded with God to bring heavenly realities of justice and equality back to America today. Like, George, like, that's how you stay resilient if you're Dr. King living in the 60s. And it's exactly what we see all throughout Daniel's story. And it continues into this third revival that we see in the following verses. In verse 16, the king finds out that Daniel's been praying faithfully to the Lord in defiance of his order. And the king doesn't like it because he loves Daniel. Nevertheless, he reluctantly does what he told him he was going to do. He tosses him in a lion's den. And verse 19 is going to read this. It's going to say, at the first light of dawn, the king got up and he hurried to the lion's den. When he came near the den, he called to Daniel in an anguished voice. And he said, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God whom you serve continually been able to rescue you from the lions? And Daniel answered him. He just simply said, may the king live forever. Can you imagine the amount of humility and respect that you must have to be able to say that to the man who threw you in a lion's den. May the king live forever. Like he's not even shaken by this entire thing. My God sent his angel, verse 22, and he shut the mouths of the lions. They have not hurt me because I was found innocent in his sight, nor have I ever done any wrong before you, your majesty. The king was overjoyed and he gave orders to lift Daniel out of the den. And when Daniel had lifted from the den, no wound was found on him. Why? Because he had trusted in his God. Church, when did he trust in his God? three times a day for the entirety of his life. Verse 25, then King Daniel Darius wrote to all the nations and the peoples of every language in all the earth, may you prosper greatly. I issue a decree that in every part of my kingdom, people must fear and reverence the God of Daniel for he is the living God and he endures forever. His kingdom will never be destroyed and his dominion will have no end. He rescues and he saves. He performs signs and wonders in the heavens and on the earth. He has rescued Daniel from the power of the lions. Church, can you imagine if a political leader today, anywhere in the world, were to make a decree like that and actually mean it? 
I just, this is the third massive revival that takes place there. And it just wraps up and it simply says, and so, God, so Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. Billy Graham was asked about the most important part of his preparation for any revival and evangelistic crusade that he did. And I love what he had to say about that. But he goes, there's three things that matter most when you're doing an evangelistic crusade. The first one is prayer. The second thing is prayer. And the third thing is more prayer. I'll never forget 2001. I was a part of a Billy Graham crusade when they came to College Station, Texas. And it was a fascinating thing to be a part of. But for me, probably one of my biggest takeaways was how much, um, how deeply committed they were to prayer. About a year and a half before the crusade ever came, there was a team of people that moved into the city and they were there to gather together the church to do exactly that, to pray. And so for an entire year and a half, they gathered together all the churches in the city and uh, they would have weekly prayer gatherings. And they said, we will not come and we will not do this crusade uh, because it will be fruitless if the church is not united in prayer. And so for an entire year, there's a team of people that was already there gathering the pastors, the leaders, the church, everybody who's there and they're gathering there to pray. And you know what happened, church? Like it worked. thousands of people responded to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Remember sitting there in that crusade that day, the music begins to play and the altar call was made and like people start flooding to the ground and they start going down there and, and, uh, and people start responding to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Never forget the very next Sunday, like the churches were filled in my church that I was going to at the time, it was filled and people were standing up there and they were giving testimony after testimony about how God has changed their life and God has saved their soul and began to do some works of redemption and restoration in their marriages and, and creating peace and righteousness inside their soul. But again, church, like it all started with prayer. It's the whole point. Like every bit of it, it began with prayer because when the church is defiant and disciplined to pray, the power of God gets unleashed in the world. And church, that is my hope and my prayer for us today, that, that you look around at the evil, that you look around at the difficulty in the world today, that you look around at the different things and that you would be desperate for God to move and that it would drive you to get down on your knees and to pray every single day and defiantly against the things that you're seeing around you, that you would pray every single day for your own soul and you would say exactly as Daniel did and say, it's not just out there, but Father, it begins in here. God, would you forgive the sin that's in my life? Would you set me free from the addictions that are in my soul today? God, would you do this work of restoration inside my own soul today. That we would do that every single day for our kids and for our marriages and for the economy and for our country and for the leadership that's there. And God, that we would pray, that we would pray every single day and say, Father, would you bring renewal and revival to our land once again? And so I'm going to go away in a few days and I'm going to start having a little bit of time alone, and I'm going to start praying for us and for our church body. I'm going to pray that as you do this, that God would come and that he would strengthen you from the inside out, that he would make you and me a resilient people, and that he would compensate for the weakness of our flesh, but that he would bless you with his resilience today. And so church, how do you stay resilient for 65 years when everyone around you is opposed to you and the things that you believe? It's right here in this text, three times a day. Daniel prayed defiantly, just as he always had. And may that be true of you and me. Heavenly Father, we do love you and praise you. God, that you are a personal God who responds when we pray. God, you're not unknowable. You're not unmovable. You're not so far away, God, that you can't hear us when we cry out to you. And God, right now we are crying out to you. Father, I pray that you would meet us in the middle of our prayers, in the middle of our cries. God, that you would incline your 
heart to us, God, that you would move for the praise and glory of your name. Father, I'm mindful of somebody today who's come in and, Lord, their heart's growing cold. Uh, Maybe they're being tempted to walk away or to stop walking with you. And Father, I pray that you would do a work, that you would draw them back in and that you would make them resilient. God, that they would come to you every single day in prayer. And Father, that you would strengthen them from the inside out. God, that they would continue walking with you no matter what's going on around them that day. And so Lord, may that be true here at Dallas Bible Church. May we be a church that understands that the power of God is unleashed when the people of God come and gather to pray. So Lord, we do love you. God, we trust you with that. God, would you do that work in us? And again, would you do all these things for the praise and the glory of your name? We love you and we do praise you. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen and amen.